As Dustin mentioned this morning, we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' last things that he said on the cross. But before we do that, I want to start with a bit of a quiz. How many of you know the number of statements made by Jesus while he was on the cross? Anybody want to venture a guess? Seven of them, yeah. Pastors have done whole entire sermons on these seven statements. Now, the next part of that quiz, how many of you know what some of those statements are? I've got them written down so I can remember them. So I'm not doing this from memory. Cheater, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I do preach expositorily, so that does make me a cheater, if you remember my comments from last week. I'm going to give them to you in order here. My God, my God... Yes, why have you forsaken me? Matthew chapter 27. How about this one? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Luke chapter 23. And these are in order. Do you remember what what he said to the thief beside him? Remember the two thieves? Yeah, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember what he said to Mary and John? Yeah, he said, Dear woman, here is your son. And to John the Apostle, he said, Here is your mother. That's from John chapter 19. Even thinking about Mary at that point, we believe, was a widow because Joseph is not mentioned anywhere. And so Jesus was concerned about having his mother cared for and put, him in, put her into the hands of his most trusted disciple, John. Imagine that, being up on a cross and the agony and the pain and what he was struggling with and still looking down at his mother and caring for her needs. Pretty amazing thing. How about John chapter 19? He said, I am thirsty. When they raised up the bitter wine to him. John chapter 19, he said, it is finished. And then immediately following that, according to Luke chapter 23, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's always intrigued me looking at those and and working through what they meant and why Jesus said them. And one that has intrigued me for a while is this phrase, it is finished. And so as I thought about what to do for Easter this year, that phrase just kept coming to mind. And so I thought, I'm going to spend some time working through that. And what's interesting to me about this, and it's something that I didn't know, we often talk about the Gospels each having themes. And one of the themes in the Gospel of John, in fact, it's the primary theme. John tells us why he wrote his Gospel, and it's so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so each one of the Gospels has a theme, and then there are also sub-themes, if you will, that run throughout the Gospels. And what was interesting is that as I began to research this and look into this phrase by Jesus, it became clear that another theme in the Gospel of John is the idea of Jesus finishing the work that God had given him to do. In fact, four different times Jesus uses either that phrase or a very similar phrase. He uses it at the beginning of his ministry. He uses it near the end of his earthly ministry, and then he used it on the cross. So the first two are at the beginning of the ministry. That comes from John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. The third time was when he was praying in the garden the night before he was crucified. He uses the same basic phrase. And then the fourth and final time that he used that phrase was immediately before he died on the cross in John chapter 19. And so we have this thread that goes through the book of John that uh, ties through this idea 
of the work that Jesus Christ did. So I'm going to use those four passages today as our outline. The first two passages I'm going to cover together. And then the next two will be the final two parts of our time this morning as we teach. So we're going to start with this. Jesus came, according to his own words, to finish the work that God the Father had given him to do. Jesus Christ came to finish the work that God the Father had given him to do. I want you to turn to John chapter 4 with me. I'm going to set the table for us here. Jesus is traveling through Galilee, and he stops at a well to get a drink. You probably remember this story. He meets a Samaritan woman there at the well, and they engage in a conversation. And that conversation reveals Jesus to her. He reveals himself to her as the Messiah. And this is while the disciples are away. When the disciples return, they're concerned because Jesus hadn't eaten in a while. So they begin to, you could say, urge him or maybe pester him, encouraging him to eat because, again, they were concerned that he hadn't done so. His response then to that is found in verses 27 through 38. So we're going to go ahead and read that. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who has told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out from the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, that's the word finish, to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is uh, receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. They sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So notice that Jesus declares that his food... It's what satisfies and what sustains us. That's the way Jesus is using it here. What satisfies and what sustains him, his food, he says, was to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, again, that's the word finished, accomplished, or accomplish his work. Jesus uses this imagery of food, Again, as a way of referring to that which satisfied or sustained him in his earthly ministry. He's not saying he didn't need food, but he's saying there was something more important. There was something else that sustained him, that motivated him, that helped him to be satisfied. The disciples were more concerned about Jesus' physical needs. They were trying to get him to eat. But Jesus turned that into a more important lesson, a much greater need, which was spiritual in nature. So he's attempting to teach them a lesson here, and it has to do with why he came. You'll notice there are two reasons Jesus said, or two things that satisfied or sustained him. The first one, he says, was to do the will of him who sent me. Now we know that that's a reference to the Father. The one who sent him was God the Father. And that's attested throughout the Bible. 
I found an interesting statistic as I was looking for this. I love using my Bible programs that allow me to search for things and count them up and see how often something is used. I found this stunning. Jesus, in just the Gospel of John, referred to being sent by the Father. Anybody want to guess how many times? 40 times. And that's just the Gospel of John. 40 times Jesus referred to himself as the one having been sent by God the Father. I didn't even bother to go any further and count up the rest of the references in the scriptures. But that is a major theme throughout the Bible. That God, what? Sent his only begotten son. Most of the references in the Gospel of John were made specifically by Jesus himself. In fact, I'd be willing to bet, and again, I didn't catalog all of this, I'd be willing to bet that he probably referred to himself as the one sent by the Heavenly Father probably more than any other phrase or designation or term in the whole entire Gospel. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was constantly referring to himself that way. That is how he identified himself. Jesus often tied this idea of being sent by the Father to what he says here, which was to doing the Father's will. He was sent to do the Father's will. Turn to John chapter 5. Jump down into verse 25. We're going to actually work our way down and... Oh, wait a minute. Is that John chapter 5? Yep. There we go, John chapter 5. I had two pages sticking together. kept going from 4 to 6. Somebody took a whole chapter out of my Bible. John chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. He's talking about resurrection there. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now look at this, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus does this throughout his ministry, tying the fact that he had been sent by God to doing God's will. John chapter 6, verse 38. Go ahead and jump down to John chapter 6. We'll start at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have not come down from heaven, or for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of, again, him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that All that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Talk about assurance of salvation there. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Again, Jesus ties the fact that He was sent by God to doing God's will. Now we get a picture of what that meant as we look at the rest of the Scriptures. Jesus made a reference in John chapter 5, verse 19, that He didn't act on His own initiative. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Father also does in like manner. Jesus said He didn't do anything on His own initiative. Those of us that have sort of studied what it meant for Jesus Christ to be totally and completely dependent on the Holy Spirit, He gave up the exercise of His divine attributes. He didn't give up His divine attributes, but Philippians chapter 2 tells us that He gave up the use of of those divine attributes, made Himself totally, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything. And this is one of them. He didn't do anything out of His own initiative. He only did what His Father gave Him to do. He says elsewhere that he didn't even speak on his own initiative. John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me, there that is again, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Now think about that for a moment. Here you are, God come down in the flesh. You're here to do the will of God the Father, and you do not do or say anything of your own initiative, but only what God the Father gave you to do and told you to do. And so Jesus ties his being sent by the Father to doing only the will of the Father. Now, we can get into the debate as to what does that mean when Jesus says, not my will, but your will. Their wills are one and the same. But what Jesus is saying there is he only did what he was given to do. He only said what he was given to say in part as an example to us of what it meant to live a life that is totally dependent on the Holy Spirit and doing what the Father gives us to do and saying what the Father tells us to say. So the first thing Jesus ties to being sent by the Father is that his food was to do the will of the Father. The second thing he says, the second thing that sustained him was to accomplish the work or to finish the work that God the Father had given to him. To finish God's work means to complete it. That's what that word means. It means to bring it to a successful end. It also means to make it perfect and make it complete. You know, it's like when you're building something, you know, it's only partially there, right? But when you finish it, it's now completely done. And so Jesus said that the reason he was sent, one of the things that sustained him was to finish the work that God had given to him, to accomplish it, to make it complete, to make it perfect. That begs the question now for us. What was the will and the work that Jesus was set on finishing? I would say that essentially the will of God and the work of God are synonyms referring to God's redemptive plan. His plan to redeem fallen mankind, to save us from our sin, to save us from death and an eternity separated from Him. The plan, God's, and you hear us talk about that all the time. You know that I love the Old Testament. 
I think we, you know, when the Old Testament is two-thirds of our Bible, we ought to spend time there. So we do. We spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. There's a movement today to move away from the Old Testament. You know, that's Old Testament. That's Israel, you know. And yet, that is where Christ is revealed. And it's because God has chosen to reveal His redemptive plan for mankind, starting in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through. And so there's this redemptive plan that God began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember, we we talk about this often. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God said to Eve, or to, to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, you will, or he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the field. We refer to that as the first gospel, the proto-evangelon. It's when God first announced that he would fix what Adam and Eve had broken in the garden. That was the beginning of of his redemptive plan. And what we see as we go through the Old Testament is that gradually over time we see that plan unfold. You know, you see it not just in Genesis 3 there, but you even see it as you get to the flood. When God provides for creation, when he looked at the sin of the world and he saw that everything was totally corrupt, everything was filled with violence, and God had a choice at that moment. He could either just wipe out mankind and start all over, but instead he chose to save mankind through the ark and through one man, Noah, who is a type of Christ. And so we see the gospel begin to be reflected in how God redeemed his creation at the flood. And then we see him move on and we see him select Abraham, where he took a man from a pagan nation who didn't know him, revealed himself to him, and basically said, I am going to save mankind through you. By setting you aside, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the nations will be blessed through you. And so we saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we saw God's redemptive plan unfold through that as he established Israel in Egypt. Made them indeed a multiplied great people. And then once again, rescued them from Egypt. Drew them out, providing, in some respects, a prophet. Moses, who was again a type of Christ, who then rescued them, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into the land through the conquest, established Israel as his own people, built a temple there, put himself there in their presence. We see him going all the way to David, and we see reflected in David the very same thing, God's redemptive salvation plan, promising that he would establish a king from the line of David, who would serve not just Israel, but all of mankind. And so we see throughout the Old Testament this unfolding of God's redemptive plan. That's what we find when we look at the Scriptures. If we just see the history and all the other things, we totally miss it. And so then we come to Jesus. And Jesus, as He's talking to His disciples here, says, I have come to finish that work. I have come to finish God's redemptive plan. So he's referencing this idea of completing everything that was necessary to fulfill what God started back in Genesis chapter 3. That was his food. That was his sustenance. That is what sustained him. That is what kept him going. That is ultimately what kept him on the cross. He says, I came to finish it. John chapter 5, turn there with me. John chapter 5, just jump down into verse 36. 
he makes another reference to works. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, to finish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has, and here it is again, He sent me. So Jesus references here again that God has given me, and He uses the plural form here, works. You notice before he said, work that God had given me to do. That was a general reference to the whole entire package, if you will. God's whole entire redemptive plan. I've come to finish that. But within that, there are individual works that must be done that the Father has given to him. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just basically going to briefly touch on this. But when we think about the work, there's a whole theology of works when it comes to um, Christ. We did a, a theology series here a while back. And we looked at all the big ones, you know, the eschatology and homardiology and some of those really big ones. Well, within that, there's all kinds of subcategories or sub-theologies. One of them is referred to as the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ? And the best way to summarize that is with three things. Jesus was a prophet and had works associated with being a prophet, which means that he had to reveal, and that was one of his responsibilities. One of the works, plural, that the Lord gave him to do was to reveal the Father, to reveal the Father's plan. He was also a priest. That was a second role that he fulfilled. He had works associated with being a priest. He didn't just serve as our high priest, but he also served as the sacrificial lamb, a priest who gave himself up. An Old Testament priest couldn't do that, but Jesus could. The third group of works, if you will, center on another role, and that's a final role, that of being king. He promised, he was promised to be an eternal king who would rule and reign forever. And so if you were to look at the theology of works Christ and you were to study that, you'd find that all the stuff that Jesus did from his miracles to his preaching to his teaching to his loving, everything he did falls into one of those three categories. And Jesus says, the Father gave me those works to do to finish them so that ultimately I could complete, I could finish, I could perfect God's redemptive plan. And so the first thing that we see with this phrase as Jesus uses it, that he was sent by God to finish God's work. Now there are two things we're going to do here to to sort of put our hands around the last two times we see Jesus use this phrase. And it's very simply this. Jesus faithfully finished the earthly work that God gave him to do, and he finished the spiritual work that God gave him to do. So he said he was here to finish the work, and now we're going to look at him finishing it. So, John chapter 17. This is the next time we see Jesus use this phrase, and it comes at the very end of his earthly ministry. So while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's referred to as the high priestly prayer. It's the night before Jesus was arrested and taken off to be crucified. And he says this, John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself and with the glory that I had with you before the world was. 
I have manifested your name to the men who you have given me out of the world. They are yours and you have, or you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you have given me, I have given to them and they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and that they believe that you sent me. I'm just going to stop there. You notice that Jesus says here that everything the Father had given to him, he says, I've finished. I've accomplished. I've done it. The difference between this statement here and elsewhere is this one's in the past tense. He's done. He's finished it. It's obvious from the rest of chapter 17 here that Jesus is primarily referring to his earthly work. So what he says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having finished, having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. He tells us in this passage what that actually involves. Now I'm just going to summarize it. So we're going to kind of go through bullet point, rapid fire, through the rest of chapter 17. And I want you just to listen to what Jesus says. Chapter 17, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given to me. What he says is, I've revealed you to them. That was one of the works. He says in chapter or verse 8, For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. All the commands and everything about life, about God. He says, I've given them your words. Verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them. He goes on to say, I guarded them. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, which was Judas. So he says, I've, I've protected them. I've guarded them. Why? Because they were, the, they were God the Father's. They belonged to him. And he says, I guarded them. I protected them. That was another one of the works. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. That was another work that Jesus was given by God the Father to accomplish his redemptive plan was sending out the disciples into the world. And he says, I've done that, Father. I've finished that. Verse 19, he says, For their sake I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Another one of the works that Jesus had to accomplish for God's redemptive plan had to do with sanctification. First, sanctifying himself, meaning setting himself apart. And he now says that they now have been set apart, sanctified in truth because of what he did, because of his work. Verse 22, he says, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. He's given to them the very same glory that that the Father had given to him. He has now given to them, and it has now been given to us. Verse 23, he says, I have loved them just as you have loved me. So the Father sent Jesus to love not just the disciples, but to love us just like he loved Jesus. The last thing he says here in verse 26, and I have made your name known to them. These are all things, works if you will, that God the Father had given to Jesus Christ so that His perfect redemptive plan could come to completion. And He had tasked Jesus the Son to successfully finish that earthly work. 
And Jesus is able to say again in verse 4, Father, I glorified you on the earth having or by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. It's a pretty powerful statement. Only Jesus could say that. No other individual could say that. Jesus himself earlier had said, that's what made him greater than John the Baptist. So we have all these great things. He manifested God to these people, to us. He's kept them, protected them, given them the word, sent them into the world, sanctified himself so that we could be sanctified. He's loved us, given to us. All these amazing things. That was the work that Jesus said he accomplished. He finished it. There was nothing left to do in terms of his earthly ministry. However, there was one more thing that was spiritual in nature that Jesus had to accomplish. And that's what actually takes us now to the cross. The last time that Jesus himself uses this word in the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, verse 30. We're going to start in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, finished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now you may have noticed that this word finished, accomplished, is used three times in just these few verses here. Did you catch that? Knowing that all things had already been finished, accomplished, to finish or fulfill the scriptures, basically then, he says, it is finished. Something else that you can't necessarily see here in the English is that each one of these each one of the times that the word finished is used there it's in the perfect tense and we talk about tenses because tenses can be important when it comes to understanding what the author is trying to drive home and this perfect tense is the idea of something that has been accomplished finished it's already done it's usually something in the past but the effects and the emphasis is on what's happening now so it's something that takes place, that's completely finished, but the results of that extend all the way into the future, and that's where the emphasis is here, right now. And so what John is telling us here is not it was finished, but it is finished. There's a big difference. And so Jesus, as he's up there on the cross, as he breathes his last breath, as he says... It's finished. The final thing Jesus did to complete, to finish the work of God was to offer himself as a sacrifice, to die on a cross, to atone for sin, and to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. That was his final earthly act, but it was spiritual in nature. One of the first things that John the Baptist, in the beginning of his gospel here, declares about Jesus Christ is found in chapter 1, verse 29, and it says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, you remember this, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? 
who takes away the sin of the world. John begins his gospel with that. And at the end of the gospel says it's finished. With when Christ does exactly that. Offers himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that we don't have to face the penalty that we are due because of our own sin. John's illusion comes from Isaiah chapter 53. You remember that, the suffering servant. Why don't you go ahead and Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be a attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, or he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb he is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. But oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who, can, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom... The stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he could render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The last earthly act that Jesus did to allow himself to be crushed by the Father for our sin. And so as he's on the cross, after being crucified, and just moments before his death, says it's finished. It's done. All the work to accomplish God the Father's redemptive plan is finished. Amen. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. It's finished. Yes. Perfect tense. Once for all. No other work is necessary. That's why salvation is now by grace. Through faith. That's why we don't have to work. 
Jesus finished all the work. It's done. So Peter says, For Christ also died once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now you'll notice there that Peter ends with, but made alive in the Spirit, and that takes us to Easter. On this weekend, we celebrate not just what Jesus finished on the cross, but what God did after that in raising him up to new life. What Jesus finished on the cross would ultimately be meaningless if God didn't raise him from the dead. There could be no resurrection from the dead had Christ not submitted himself to be crushed by the Father and put to death on our behalf. The two go hand in hand. So Jesus finished it all. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Paul spells this out for us. In Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's our hope. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why we celebrate Easter. We are alive in Christ. For those who know Jesus Christ, for those who have confessed Him as their Lord and their Savior, and have committed themselves to love Him and to love the Father with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to trust Him for salvation, for those in Christ. Jesus said, They who have Him have life. And so because of what Jesus did, because He was able to finish all the work that his father gave him to do. We now can be free from sin, free from death, and spend eternity with him. Much like that thief on the cross whom Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what awaits those who know him. I want to turn to one final passage going to tie this up. We'll end with this. Just turn to Luke chapter 24. Jesus actually used this phrase again. Not in the Gospel of John. Luke chapter 24. Jump down to verse, I think it's verse 36 here. 
While they were telling these things, he, Jesus, himself, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? He gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Look at the illusion there, because I want you to see something here. Remember how it all started? Jesus, you need something to eat, and he says, My food is to do the will of the Father. Here he is eating physical food, but then he says this, verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what? Must be fulfilled. Must be finished. So what we celebrate today is the fact that Jesus finished the work that the Father gave him to do. Because he did that, God the Father's redemptive plan, again, the plan that he set in motion from when the first sin was committed and separated us from him, he put a plan in motion to save us. And it all ended with Jesus completing the work that the Father started, which involves not just the cross, ultimately, but resurrection. And that's what we're here to celebrate. Amen?